Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Lord willing, we are going to finish our series on the doctrines of grace this morning. Next week will be our communion service. And so I met with the men of GCA Friday night, the deacons. The deacons and Jeff, I don't know how to qualify Jeff in all of that, but the deacons and Jeff. And we got together and talked about what would be the best way to have a communion service in this current environment. So we will be making some adjustments just for the sake of everybody's health and well-being. Hopefully, some of the folks who have been staying away the last couple of months will be joining us. That seems to be the case. We have been talking about the perseverance of the saints. We've been talking about the fact that those people who are blood-bought Christians, those people who were chosen by God before the foundation of the world, whose names are written down in the Lamb's Book of Life, they are going to persevere in the faith. We have, over the last couple of weeks, also talked about what the Bible says about people who appear to be in the faith and then abandon the faith. The Bible also accounts for people like that. So I hope that you are settled on the notion, settled on the realization, that because salvation is God's enterprise and because it is God who is choosing, electing, and saving people, that if those people were ever lost, if they lost their salvation, if they lost the faith, if they did not persevere, that is to say that God in his almighty power didn't have the power to keep them. He didn't have the ability to hold them because he is superior to them. Therefore, since he does all his good pleasure, since he does everything according to the counsel of his own will, if he decides to choose somebody and save somebody, that is exactly what he's going to do. He's going to choose and save those people, and the people who he does that for are not powerful enough to overthrow his intention for them. Now, there are people who will agree with everything I've just said. They will agree that that's right. The human being cannot overthrow the intention of God. The human being, by their own will, cannot overthrow God's purpose in saving them. It's actually more a demonic matter. Instead of saying that the human is responsible for losing their salvation, they will say, yes, but you haven't yet accounted for the devil. Satan himself. And because Satan exists and he is ever accusing the brethren, then if somebody does lose their salvation, it's because Satan accomplished it. So that's what we're going to look at first this morning. Does the devil himself have the ability to separate somebody 
from the God who chose them before the foundation of the world. Now, his very name, when we say the word devil, that is a word that came to us in the English language through a Greek word, diabolos. And diabolos means the divider, the separator. His very name describes what it is he does. He tries to separate people from God. He separates people from the truth. He separates people from righteousness. That is not only part of his characteristic. It is intrinsic to him because he is named that. That is what he does. He actively works to separate people. And he is very subtle in the doing of it. The devil is described in the Bible as being an angel of light. The Bible says that Satan fell because he was raised up in his own beauty. He became so self-absorbed that he wanted to place his throne in the place of the north and be worshipped as God. And so his intention is always to draw people away from the worship of the true God, but then to get them to worship him. Get this right, the devil does not hate worship, he loves worship. He just wants that worship to be misguided. He wants the worship to be toward things that don't deserve worship so that God does not get his rightful worship. And he is going to appear as an angel of light. He's going to look like someone who has the ability to save you, to be beneficial, to be caring for your soul. Paul writes that because the devil himself is an angel of light, that it's no surprise that his ministers then appear as angels of light. So if you're expecting the demonic horde to look like something that Disney created, that's not reality. That's not what's going to happen. Instead, the Diabolos, from the very beginning, from the Garden of Eden, we read that he was more subtle than all the creatures in the garden. He didn't just come to Eve and say, do evil. Instead, he came to Eve and had a discussion with her. Look, this is just logical. Didn't God say that you could eat of every tree in the garden? Yes, but we can't eat of that tree. Well, God knows that the day you eat of it, your eyes are going to be opened and you're going to be like God. And so he's really just a jealous God. He's just holding back something really good that you really ought to have a part of. You see, he's just dealing in a subtle and logical way, appealing to people's pride, people's notions of self-desire. And that's the way that he still works to this very day. That is why I still contend that his leading mode, his leading method of operation in the world today is advertising because it all just appeals to everything your flesh desires. It's all about you. It's all about you getting what you want. It's all about misguided worship. So can the devil, biblically, looking, knowing now that that's his purpose, can he actually accomplish the purpose of dividing when it comes to people who are bought by the finished work of Christ, who have been chosen by God since before the foundation of the world? I keep saying that phrase because it's biblical. Can saints who have been chosen by God and redeemed by Christ be separated from God 
by the superior power of Satan himself. That's the next issue that we have to talk about. And if we can settle that, then we know that we can't do it. Circumstances can't do it. Time can't do it. Temptations can't do it. The devil himself can't do it. Well, then it is true that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. That is a fact if we're confident that there is nothing or anyone or any entity in all creation that can do that separating work. Let's start at 1 John 5, 18, which makes this very simple direct statement. In order for Satan to tempt you away from God, Satan would actually have to have access to you. He would have to be able to influence you. And yet 1 John 5.18 says, We know that whosoever is born of God, okay, that's that particular category. Remember last week we talked about all the humankind being separated into two large categories, seed of the woman, seed of the serpent. You're either vessels of grace and mercy or you're vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. So one particular group are the group that are born of God. So when we're talking about that group of people, we know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. It doesn't become a way of life. It's not something that we practice. It's something that we do fight against. Even though we may fall into sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. But then also we have a perfect Savior, who died to pay our sin debt so that ultimately all those that are born of God are not going to have to be judged or answer for the sins that they have committed in this lifetime. And so John can say, if you're born of God, you sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God, same phrase, born of God, begotten of God, means the same thing. You have been reborn. You have been regenerated. God himself has made a change within you. He that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one, that would be Satan, that wicked one, the diabolus, the divider, that wicked one touches him not. Did you just applaud that? Yeah. That wicked one doesn't touch him. Now, in a moment, we'll dig into why it is that the wicked one does not touch him. But that's a reality. If you have the Holy Spirit of God residing inside you, then you cannot be possessed by a lesser power. You already have the superior power living within you. The consequence of having that superior might of God residing inside you is not only that you are born again, you are regenerated, but you are protected. Think about the beginning of the book of Job. When Satan comes to God and they're discussing Job, God brings Job up, which I've always kind of marveled at. I thought, if I were Job, I'd be like, why are you bringing me up right now? But he says, "Have have you seen my servant Job? He's upright. He's righteous. He eschews evil. Have you noticed him? And Satan says, well, it's, it's not for nothing that he worships you. You've built a hedge around him. You've protected him. 
now if you let me get to him if you let me tempt him if you let me ultimately hurt him hurt his body he'll curse you to his face but notice that God had to agree to those terms in order for Satan to even get to Job because God had built a hedge of protection around Job so whether we're looking at the oldest book in the Bible or whether we're looking at the New Testament declarations like this from John it is the same idea if God is for you who can be against you who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect and you are protected by God the almighty power of God has built a hedge of protection around you and he has deposited his Holy Spirit inside you in other words you are safe you are secure because you are protected it is really good to know that it is not your ability to ward off temptation that's going to keep you saved because you by your sinful flesh by your sinful desires you're going to give in to temptation were it not for the fact that the superior power of God is protecting you guiding you changing your mind changing your heart changing your desires and therefore it can be said of you that you sin not as a consequence the wicked one touches you not okay now just think about that one little verse now God is going to judge you you're standing before God waiting for the judgment number one you are complete in Christ you are redeemed fully in Christ and therefore your sin debt is not something that he counts against you he looks at you as someone who has not sinned as someone who is fully redeemed as someone who is already justified and on top of that the wicked one the very one who tries to separate you from God can't touch you nor can he accuse you because who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect do you see how very safe how very protected you are and all of that protection all of that security is the result of God's doing not the result of your doing that's how secure you are when the Pharisees confronted Jesus and they accused him of driving out demons by the power of Beelzebub he stated the very thing that I have been trying to elucidate here he stated that two strong men cannot inhabit the same house so when the Holy Spirit enters into a man who was formerly under the control of the prince of the power of the air the power of the Spirit of God binds that devil and throws him out and the Holy Spirit takes up residence in that house and because he is the stronger man that house can never again be spoiled and that is why I said that people who have the Spirit of God within them cannot be possessed by the spirit of Satan you're secure you're safe because two cannot occupy the same house the superior will throw out the inferior now that's according to Jesus Matthew 12 29 he says or else how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods except he first bind the strong man and then he will spoil his house Jesus is saying once I enter once the Spirit of God enters any person he binds up Satan 
And then he casts him out of the house. And then the strong man, the superior man, takes up residence there. In the parallel account, Luke stresses the superior might of God's spirit. Luke 11, 20 to 22 says, But if I, with the finger of God, cast out devils, then no doubt the kingdom of God is upon you. When a strong man, armed, keepeth his palace, well, then his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusteth and divideth his spoils. So Satan is saying, that Satan was living at ease, at peace. The prince of the power of the air had control over all mankind in their depraved, normal, natural state. But when Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, comes to a man with the intention of saving that man, he binds the Satan that lives within him. He binds the demonic activity that goes on within him. And then he casts him out. He spoils him completely. He takes away his armor in which he's trusting. And he ends up taking residence because he is the superior might. After all, in 1 John 4, 4, we read, You are of God, little children, and you have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. He that is in the world is the prince of the power of the air. Now, in the book of Ephesians, Paul writing takes the time to say that before we were redeemed, before God was kind to us, that we were just like everybody else that we were sold out to the prince of the power of the air, that we were seeking our own way, our own lusts, our own desires by our own flesh. That's how we all were until Christ himself set up housekeeping within us by the power of the spirit, the one who is greater. He then is within us and he is greater than he that is in the world. So here are a few principles we can hold on to. According to God, his power, his might, his strength is superior to the might and the strength of Satan and all his demons. That's good to know. God in all his strength and all his power and all his intention is stronger than you. So that means that his strength, power, might, determination is superior to every other power might determination anywhere else in the universe and as a result almighty God always does all his good pleasure because he has the might the strength the power the ability to make sure that whatever he wills whatever he determines always comes to pass and there's nothing in heaven hell or earth that can stop God from doing what he wants to do and if he wants to save you well then he's saving you and Satan cannot overthrow that. You're going to be tempted in this lifetime. But will those temptations separate you from God? Because if you're anything like me, you can look back on all the number of temptations from this world that you gave into and that you will give into probably before the day is over. So are your temptations enough 
to separate you from God? Well, the answer is no. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, There is no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. In other words, the temptations of this world are the temptations that everybody deals with. But I love the next phrase. As you go through the temptations that are common to mankind, the very fact that you are flesh and bone, the very fact that you are alive on this planet, the very fact that you are a sinful human means, that you are participating in the common temptation that happens to everybody on the planet. Can that separate you from God? No, because the next phrase says, but God is faithful. That's everything we've been trying to say. That even though we sometimes are faithless, even though we sometimes fall into temptation, even though we sometimes seem to be following after the course of this world or after our flesh, God remains faithful to everything he has decided to do, everything he has determined to do, everybody that he has chosen, everybody that he has written down before the foundation of the world. He remains faithful to them despite our faithlessness. There is no temptation taken you but such as is common to man, but God is faithful. Who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able? Every once in a while, I think he's kind of stretching that point. I have gone through temptations, trials, difficulties in my life that I thought were going to break me. Here I do this frequently. So it'll be fun. Let's do it again. How many of you have ever been in that same position that I just described where you went through a trial, a temptation, a difficulty in your life that you thought was going to end you, that you just didn't think you were going to survive, there was no way you were going to get through it, this is the end of it. How many of you have had that moment? Okay, that's a lot of hands. Those of you who didn't raise your hands, you are liars. Okay, Now, for all of you who did raise your hand, who did go through that kind of difficulty, how many of you got through it? Yeah, because there's no dead people here. You got through it. Why did you get through it despite the fact that you were convinced that you weren't going to get through it? Because God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that that you're able to endure, that you're able to bear. He knows what the limits are. He knows how far he can push you. He knows what he's doing as he increases your faith and your dependence on him. But he will, with the temptation, also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So, now that you've been through a terrible trial, a terrible temptation, and then you thought it was going to destroy you, but then you endured through it, and God was faithful to you, you can look back now on those circumstances, and it will give you confidence for the ones that are coming. The next time you're under a trial, the next time you're under a difficulty, you're going to know, that's right, I got through the last one. And it wasn't my strength that did it. I got through the last one because God was faithful to me. You know what? Since God doesn't change, I'm going to bet he's going to get me through this one too. And if the final trial does kill you, 
you go home. So God remains faithful. So all the false prophets, and we know from Peter's writing, we know from the Old Testament, we know from the book of Hebrews, we know that false prophets are going to come among God's people. They are going to try to dissuade you. They are going to try to separate you. That is why I pound away at the Bible, because it's really important that you know God's word, that you know what God's word says so that when the false teachers, the false prophets show up and try to coerce you, that you're ready, you're prepared. You know your Bible well enough that you're not going to be drawn away by them. But all those false prophets and even Antichrist himself are unable to influence the minds of those who God has built his hedge around. You're protected from all the evil that this world is going to throw at you. Which is why even Jesus in Matthew 24, 24, 24, he's talking about the end days as they have asked him, what are going to be the signs of your coming? He says there will arise false Christs and false prophets and they are going to show great signs and wonders. Boy, that's going to be convincing. If you saw somebody on TV even today doing great signs and wonders, raising the dead, giving sight to the blind, that would be enough for all of us to kind of sit up and take notice and think, oh, that, that must be a really holy guy. He must be directly from God. Look at the miracles he's doing. Well, the way you're going to tell the sheep from the goats, the way you're going to tell the true from the false prophets isn't by what they do, it's by what they say. Are they saying the stuff that glorifies God? Or are they saying the stuff that's going to draw you away from God? Jesus said that they will show great signs and wonders, so much so that they shall deceive the very elect. Except that Jesus added one more little phrase. And I am so grateful for the one little phrase that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. The very elect can't be deceived by false prophets, false teachers. The very elect are going to remain, are going to persevere in the word of God and in the Christian faith. But there are going to be really, really convincing false teachers and false prophets, so convincing, in fact, that they're going to do signs and wonders and miracles. I mean, look, when was the last time that you ever saw Benny Hinn ever do an actual sign or miracle? I'll help you out. The answer is never. You've never seen Benny Hinn actually accomplish a great sign or wonder. But people flock to him in the desire that maybe he will deliver them from their sickness. Maybe he'll do some kind of sign or wonder. Okay, now imagine with the number of people who are flocking to these faith healers, what if some of them actually do it? What if some of them are actually doing great signs and wonders? Can you imagine the throngs of people that are going to flock to them at that moment? Have you ever listened to the theology they espouse? Because their theology is whack. It's completely wrong. It's completely upside down. 
And yet people excuse that in the hope of a miracle. Boy, if they see the miracle, then they're really going to excuse the false teaching. Because the false teaching is designed to separate you. And that will be accomplished, but not for the elect. Not for those who have a hedge around them. Not those who are blood-bought by Jesus Christ, who are infilled by the Holy Spirit of God. The superior power of God lives within them, and therefore, if it were possible, they would deceive the very elect, but it's not possible. And there again is another example of our security because of God, not because of us. The elect are eternally secure from the powers of Satan that seek to pull us away from God's protective hand, which is why Paul in Romans 8, starting at verse 35, would say, Who can separate us from the love of Christ? That question is designed to assume the answer. The answer is, well, nothing, nobody. It's a rhetorical question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall temptation? Well, no, we already concluded right there that God is faithful, even in our temptations. So temptation isn't going to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Will distress? No, as you go through the distresses of this life, you're going to run toward God, not away from God. Will persecution? Well, no, we know from the example of the martyrs through history that persecution just drives people toward a greater proclamation of the truth of God. Shall famine, shall nakedness, shall peril, shall the sword? The answer is obviously no, no, no. Starting at verse 38, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers. Let me point out that those principalities and powers are probably the same way that Paul used those words when describing the spiritual wickedness that exists in high places. He referred to principalities and powers, the hierarchy of evil that exists in this world. I'm persuaded that none of that, death, or life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. That is a pretty comprehensive list. Paul was trying hard to remember to include everything. It's not going to be distress, tribulation. It's not going to be persecution. It's not going to be famine. It's not going to be nakedness. It's not going to be peril. It's not going to be the sword. It's not going to be death. It's not going to be life. It's not going to be angels, principalities. It's not going to be powers. It's not going to be things present. It's not going to be things to come. It's not going to be height. It's not going to be depth. Nor is it any other creature. And by the way, everything in his universe that is alive is his creature. And no other creature shall separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And yet I heard a preacher say that nowhere in that list are you included? So therefore, nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus except you. You have to do it. 
you have to decide. You have to sin so bad. You have to leave Jesus. My answer to that would be, you're a creature. You're in the list. Any other creature includes you. There's nothing, nothing, nothing. Paul was, Paul was trying very hard to create a definitive list that included absolutely everything in heaven, hell, and earth. All the circumstances of life, all the powers that exist in heaven and in hell. He included everything on the planet and time and things that were and things that are to come. He said, none of that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So I conclude that what Paul was saying is, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And let me point out, since he brought up principalities and powers, he is saying even demonic powers, even Satan himself cannot keep you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And if you're feeling very, very secure right now, that's good. You really ought to the more you understand about what God did for you in Christ Jesus, the more secure you should feel. Not because of your own well-being, not because of your own ability to keep yourself, but because you should recognize the almighty power of God that is keeping you. And he's doing it on purpose, and he's doing it according to his own good pleasure, which means it pleases God. To keep you. You are secure because that's what God chose to do because he has ever loved you. And it is his good pleasure to do that for you. Wow. That should feel really good to you right now. Okay, then someone's going to bring up. And every time I have had conversations about eternal security or the perseverance of the saints, almost invariably somebody will say, but doesn't the Bible say that you can fall from grace? I mean, doesn't it say that? When I said that, Jeff just went, yeah, because you've heard it too, haven't you? It comes up. Well, then doesn't the Bible say that there are people who, who fell from grace? Well, that's not exactly what it says, and it only says it once. It says it in Galatians 5, 4, and listen to the context in which that phrase is used. It actually says nothing about blood-bought, God-fearing, God-chosen individuals falling away from the grace of God. What it says is, if you're chasing your own righteousness based on the law, then Grace is no help to you because you will be judged on the basis of your performance. Here's what it says. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. So notice that not only did Paul say grace can't help you, if you want to be judged according to your own righteousness, goodness, law-keeping. But Christ himself is no effect to you. So what Paul is saying theologically here is not that blood-bought Christians fall away or lose the grace of God. What he is saying is, 
If you are trying to, by your own self-righteousness, justify yourself in your own flesh by your own ability and your own power, then both Christ and grace are no help to you. You're begging God to judge you on the basis of you, and trust me, you don't want God to judge you on the basis of you. So yes, the phrase exists in the Bible, but context matters. And the context has nothing to do with blood-bought, elect people of God chosen before the foundation of the world, losing the grace of God. Does that make sense now? Yes. Also, people will just bring up in passing, and I'll just mention this and we'll just hit it and keep going. They'll say, well, you know, so-and-so, he was a Christian. He used to go to church. He believed that stuff. But... But he's still a Christian. He just doesn't really adhere to any of that stuff anymore. But, you know, he made a profession and everything. What he is is he is a, he's a backslidden Christian. He's still a Christian, but he's backsliding. Nowhere in the New Testament, get this right, nowhere in the New Testament are the words backslide, backslider, backslidden. Any derivation of that is nowhere in the New Testament. The only place in the Bible where you find the word backslide, backslidden, is in respect to Israel in the Old Testament because they had been redeemed out of Egypt, they'd been given the law, they'd been given the 613 ordinances, and then they nationally would slide away from the rules that God had placed on them, so they were referred to as backslidden. But Christians, actual Christians, are never referred to that way. Christians are either utterly sold out to their master, they're following their shepherd, they're obeying their king, or they're not Christians. There's no such thing as a backslidden Christian. The Bible doesn't say it, so then neither should we. There are only sinners saved by grace. That's a category. But there is no such thing as a Christian who is in denial of the absolute lordship of the one who bought him. The perfection of the saints is a process. As we go through this life, we're going to struggle. We're going to have our difficulties. Those things are going to happen. Those aren't proofs. Those are not evidences that we lost our salvation. Those are evidences that we're still walking in this sinful flesh, in this God-forsaken world. Along the way, sheep stray, sinners sin, imperfect people stumble. But we're not kept secure by our ability to attain our own perfection. 2 Timothy 4.18 says, And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work, and he will preserve me, Unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. It is the Lord who is going to preserve you. That is why we persevere in the faith. Even though we stumble, we're kept from utter destruction by the unfailing grace of God. You read about that in Jude. Jude 24 and 25 says, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. Micah quotes this sometimes at the end of our service. It's a benediction. Now unto him 
who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. He's the one who can keep you from falling. You may stumble. You may have your difficulties in life. You may sin. That is the makeup of yourself. But you will also repent. You will also be called back because he is able to keep you from falling. Psalm 37 Verses 23 to 26, I love these words. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. And though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. For the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. I have been young, and now I am old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread, God is ever merciful and lendeth, and his seed is blessed. Did you hear those words? Though we fall, we will not be utterly cast down because it is God himself who upholds us with his very hand. The very hand that Jesus himself said that no one can pluck my sheep from my hand They and I are in the Father's hand, and no one can pluck us out of the Father's hand. That is the very hand that is upholding you through this walk in life. True, you're going to stumble. True, sometimes you might stumble bad, even to the point where it looks like you're going to fall down completely. But you won't be utterly cast down, because it would take God himself to utterly cast you down. He would have to change his mind about you. He would have to use his almighty power, as we've been saying the last few weeks. He would have to use his almighty power to take you from your saved state and put you back into the demonic state in which he found you. And since he is the one who is protecting you and keeping a hedge around you, since he is the stronger man who has inhabited you, he also has the ability, when you stumble, when you fall, to lift you back up, dust you back off and send you on your way again and that's good news he is ever merciful and lendeth and that's why his seed is blessed we're going to make it look it is God who cares about you and this keeping you from falling this keeping you from failing this keeping you from being sifted like wheat, this kindness from God, this compassion from God is based on God's love and mercy and care for you. It is not just that he is exercising omnipotent power to demonstrate his almighty power. There is actual emotion involved. If I can use the word emotion, it's a a word that is kind of hard to say, well, God is emotional. But then again, it is God himself who says that he is jealous. It is God himself who says that he ever loves. I don't know how to define those outside of saying that this is the emotional aspect of God, and it is his care and concern and gracious emotion towards you that is the reason that Matthew 12, 20 would say, a bruised reed, that's somebody who has fallen. That's somebody who is taken by temptation 
That's somebody who looks like they're being destroyed. Have you ever seen a blade of grass that's, that's bent in half so it's just hanging by a thread? Well, that's what he's talking about. That's the bruised reed. But he won't break it. A bruised reed he will not break. You ever seen a candle that's just down to the very end of the wick and the flame is just flickering and it's just about to go out and you're going to see the last smoke of it rise up and that's how you know that the fire is out completely? Well, then a smoking flax he shall not quench. In other words, when you're broken, when you're down to nothing, when you've got no strength left, when you've got no power left within you, of course, you had no power to begin with, but when you've got nothing, when you think this is the one that's going to kill me, when you're at that point, it is his strength, his love for you, his grace toward you that is going to cause you to endure because he is not going to break you when you're down to nothing. A bruised reed he shall not break. When that fire looks like it's going out, when it's just flickering and you think it's over, that's that smoking flax that he will not quench. Till he send forth judgment unto victory. Your personal victory is going to be the result of his judgment when he calls you home, when he judges you in the finished work of Christ and when he raises you to newness of everlasting life, that is victory. That looks very victorious. So in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews picks up the same notion. Hebrews 13.5, let your conversation be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Okay, so the one who is not going to bruise the reed, the one who is not going to put out the last flicker of fire is also the one who promised you, I'm never going to leave you. Even though in the circumstances of this lifetime, sometimes it can feel like we're very alone. And yet we will endure, yet we'll get through it, yet we can look back on those circumstances and say, God got me through that. Because it wasn't my power, it wasn't my ability. And I was down to nothing. I was down to the bare nub. I had nothing left in me. And I endured. And my faith is still intact. And I persevered through it. Well, that's the way you're going to go through all the circumstances of this life until he ultimately takes you home in that great victory. Because he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. We're always going to fall short. Just admit that. As long as we're walking around in these tabernacles of human flesh, there's always going to be this cancer of sin that's coursing through our veins. And so that's why it's so important that the promise of eternal life and the promise of a new perfect body that we're going to wear in our new perfect home is all promises based on God's faithfulness and not on our faithfulness to God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24 says, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly or completely, and I pray, God, that your whole 
spirit and soul and body will be preserved blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ faithful is he that called you who will also do it it's because of God's faithfulness that you're going to endure it's because of God's faithfulness that you're going to persevere and God is going to redeem your whole body soul spirit you are ultimately completely going to be redeemed even to the point where you're where you get a new body to dwell in the new Jerusalem all of that is the result of the faithfulness of the one who called you to begin with he called you to this Christian walk therefore he is going to protect you during this Christian walk therefore you are going to endure during this Christian walk and you are going to persevere in this Christian walk because the very God of peace is the one who separated you sanctified you utterly and completely here you want a quick example if you look at um, the Apostle Peter I like the fact that the Bible gives us a reasonably complete personality profile of Peter and even after Peter had walked and talked with Jesus he still just kept messing up constantly putting his sandal in his mouth constantly saying the wrong thing constantly not understanding what was going on he's the only of the apostles that Jesus said Satan has desired to have you so he can sift you like wheat Satan knew that he got one of them that's in the Old Testament that's already prophesied the one who sat at the table with Jesus would lift his hand against him Satan knows I get one Satan thought it was Peter can you imagine Jesus comes to Peter and goes Satan thinks you're it <laughs> you're the one Satan has desired to have you so that he can sift you like wheat and he sure did that to Judas but then Jesus says but I have prayed for you that your faith fail not Amen. so why did Peter persevere Jesus the strength of Jesus the prayers of Jesus the intervention of Jesus that's why he persevered given himself he was Satan's minion and Satan seemed to think that was the one and when you are converted said Jesus strengthen your brethren go back and do for your brethren what I've done for you within the Christian community build each other up build each other's faith talk about me tell the great things that I have done never let the Word of God disappear from your conversation as you're building each other up in the faith of Christ the very one who is intervening for us at this very moment we have an advocate with the Father Christ Jesus the righteous who sits at the right hand of God making constant intercession for us because we read that Satan the Diabolos accuses the brethren night and day but while he's up there accusing we also have an advocate we have a lawyer we have the judge's son pleading our case for us so that makes us very very secure and that's what made Peter secure there are so many examples if we want to talk about Peter I mean it is Peter who is always saying wrong things and yet 
It was Peter who stood up on the day of Pentecost and preached the sermon that some people would argue is the beginning of the church. Jesus chose him, Mr. Foot and Mouth, to preach the message at Pentecost. Why? Because Jesus saves sinners. Paul said, Jesus saves sinners of whom I am chief. I think I can give Paul a run for his money. <laughs> so then, let's finish by just talking about the value of these redeemed people then. The doctrines of grace teach us that men are miserable sinners. That's where we began weeks and weeks ago. We started at the total depravity of human beings. So they are completely without value, without goodness in and of themselves. But when the grace of God is applied to human beings, then they are remade, they are reformed, they are born again, they are regenerated into something that's difficult to even describe with human language. They're recreated into the image of God's own son. That is what they are predestinated to be, conformed to the image of his son. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. This is not the end game. We're not done yet. We're still in the persevering phase. And we don't know fully what it is we're going to be. None of us know what it's like to be eternal. Is there anybody in the room who knows what it's like to never be sick? I mean, come on, the basics. Nobody knows that. Weak, hungry, having to sleep. We all have that experience. But we don't know what we're going to be. We only know that when he appears, we're going to be like him because we're going to go through the instantaneous change. And this mortal will put on immortality. This ever dying is going to be ever living. And that's remarkable. That gracious transformation is going to be the result, the inevitable result. Of the fact that God chose us. He started this whole thing. Scripture does not say that redeemed elect sinners are going to remain the unsightly repugnant creatures that we were to begin with. That's not how we're going to exist in God's holy presence in the light that no man approaches. Instead it says that God forms us into trophies of grace like Precious treasures. Here's what it says. Revelation 1.5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. In this whole life so far, I have never been a king, nor a priest. You know what priests do? Priests are the ones that intervene between men and God and sacrifice to God on behalf of people. And that's going to be our job. Kings and priests, that's what he's making us into. Revelation 5.10 says, he has made 
us unto our God, kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. I haven't done any reigning lately. You? Anybody felt like you were really ruling and reigning these days? No. Now, I can't imagine what that rule and reign looks like, but I can't imagine... I can't imagine the perfection that Christ exists in right now that we are someday going to exist in. I can't begin to imagine the things that the Bible promises us. But we do know that it promises us that in Christ we will rule and reign. The saints are going to have authority to rule and reign with the king of kings. I can't begin to conceive of it. I just know the Bible says it. 1 Corinthians 6, 2 and 3. Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that you shall judge angels? How much more the things that pertain to this life? That's God's intention for you, that you are going to judge angels and you are going to judge angels the world not only that but he's going to make us into a thing of beauty he's going to give us the bible says beauty for ashes isaiah 61:3 is where you'll find that phrase beauty for ashes we're just dust god has pity on us because he knows that we are nothing but dust ashes to ashes dust to dust we're going to decay in the grave, and yet we're told that God is going to make us a thing of beauty. He's going to trade that oil of mourning that we go through in this life for the oil of joy, and the garment of praise is going to be exchanged for the spirit of heaviness. That's all Isaiah 61.3. In the New Testament, Ephesians 2, Paul puts it this way. God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved. And he has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places with Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us. Through Christ Jesus. That's the ultimate plan. We exist for the glory, for the purpose of worshiping, praising, and demonstrating the grace of God in Christ Jesus. This whole journey through the doctrines of grace has been to demonstrate the distance, the length that we were all taken from our depravity, from our deadness in trespasses and sins, all the way to trophies of grace that will be part of the heavenly eternal state so that God himself can point at us and say, look what I did. I took these wretches and I made them things of beauty and they exist in my presence forever. That's the biblical story. When we say it's a story of redemption, boy, we're not kidding. It's a whole lot more than he died for our sins. He died to take us from what we were to what we're going to be. And right now we're just in the process. And we will endure. We will persevere to the end because he's the one that's doing it 
all. Questions? No? Okay, I have a question for you. How secure are you feeling right now? Well, good, you should. The more you look to Christ, the more secure you're going to feel. And that is really the goal. I read a lot of Bible. I showed you a lot of Bible stuff. But we've done a lot of doctrine stuff. But was it clear? Yes. Well, see, then we shouldn't be afraid of doctrine. We shouldn't be afraid of everything the Bible has to say. Because it's clear. Well, then turn to 36 in your hymnal. And let's sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God.
Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.